0: analytics with mike lewis the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics here's your host mike lewis marketing professor at emory
1: university
0: welcome class welcome to class seven of Analytics university we will call this episode this class fan base analytics um let me begin the class by taking attendance. Doug, are you here? Present. Awesome. Okay, so this class, and we are, look, we're, we're rapidly coming to the end of the, the eight class sequence. This class is kind of the bottom line. So if we kind of go back in time over the last couple of, uh, well, over the previous six classes, we've talked about the notion of fandom, we've talked about the importance of narratives, from there, we went into discuss things like uh, on-field analytics, player analytics, decision-making. So we've talked a lot about the business of sports. At the end of the day, that's kind of a key word in all this, the business of sports. And so, you know, I, I think if I'm just talking to any sports fan out there and I say what is the what's the mission what's the goal of your team or and you know flip it around say hey if you're the general manager or the president of this team what is your goal I think the answer is winning we want to win championships but when we talk about the business of sports and like I said this is clearly a business the goal might be something a little bit different related but maybe a little bit different in that the goal is to create a fan base well uh, a, a customer, a base of customers that is intensely loyal, intensely committed, shows up to the games, watches, game on, watches the games on TV. Essentially, a, a group of customers that are valuable economic assets. So everything we've been talking about throughout the course is really designed to get at the idea of how do you create that meaningful, that that committed fan base, that passionate group of fanatical customers that you know keeps coming into the building and essentially makes us a business worth running.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I th- I think uh you know those two can go hand in hand as far as like if your goal is to create fans, it seems like people tend to like good teams, teams that win a lot. Okay, and that's the bandwagon fans.
0: And that's that that is the that is the correct intuition, right? And we, and we'll get to we'll get to that later on in in the class. Where I want to start, though, and and look, where we're going to start is actually going to illustrate the point you're making. So I've written down what I, you know, this is a, for for the oldsters in the audience, kind of a Karnak moment. I've written down, and I've not shown uh, the class, Doug, Mm -hmm. what my guess is, if I ask you the question of, what are the most iconic brands, the most iconic teams in each of the the major leagues and for for our purposes we'll just say the three major leagues of the nfl mlb and the nba so i've written down what i think you're gonna say and so let's sort of flip the flip the class for a second and put it to you doug so and, and i guess the first thing is when i say the most iconic brands what what does that phrase mean to you i want to make sure we're we're communicating
1: um the ones with the the most or i guess with the biggest fan bases Okay. Is that is that fair?
0: Well, I mean, but uh, they're, they're the prestige brands, right? They're the standard bearers for the league, right? So yeah. in the NBA, they're the teams that are going to play on Christmas, right? If we're talking right. about right, so they're, they're the I, I guess another word for it might be the, the marquee teams in a league.
1: Yeah, marquee. Okay. That's a good word for it.
0: Okay, so in the NFL, what are well, you know, give me give me Let's say three to five of the marquee, mm. the iconic brands in the league.
1: I'm gonna say Packers um, are definitely one. I think Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm just trying to think of like the classic teams, Pittsburgh Steelers. And
0: that's a good word for it too, right? I mean, it's like the vocabulary. It means something, right? Because we're not talking about the best teams in the league, right? Because that's gonna that's gonna change. So it's like, who are the classic teams, the iconic teams, yeah. the teams that. I guess when a fan thinks about the, the league, those are the teams that immediately come to mind.
1: Yeah. Um I think at this point you gotta include the the New England Patriots, uh, as far as the classics go. And then you can't forget America's team, Dallas Cowboys. Um, uh, my last one, uh ah, there's so many teams. There's there's I feel like in the NFL more so than other leagues, there's quite a few teams that have been around for a long time and have great fan bases, but I'll go with uh, the San Francisco 49ers.
0: Okay, I'll reveal my. I'll reveal the list now. And what do, what do I, what did I have on my list? What were my predictions that you'd come up with?
1: We got, uh, yeah, Packers, Cowboys, Steelers, Patriots, Bears, and Giants. I will say I'm a Giants fan, and I like. I know that I view them as more classic than probably the next person. So I was trying to be really objective. It may have <laughs> been too objective there. And, and Over-corrected. I think con-
0: and I think in terms of that list, I think even within that list, there's a pecking order. I I would probably say that the Packers, Cowboys, and Steelers might be really the 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 three most common teams that would come to mind. With uh, an, another group being the Patriots, the Bears, the Giants, and you know perhaps like the the Forty Niners. So I think there's there's almost like layers in terms of the elite in this. Uh, you know, if we were talking about college sports, we might say the blue bloods, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the Patriots is an interesting one because like if we had done this, in some ways, when you're talking about building a fan base and building a brand, these things actually tend to move a little bit slow. So we'll come back and talk about the, the Patriots in a little bit. But I think after 20 years of Brady and winning Super Bowls that the Patriots have ascended to that. Now, it's interesting that he's also moved out of town at this point. <clears throat> okay, so moving along, do you want to do a, the MLB next or NBA?
1: Mm, I got NBA fresh on the mind. Okay, uh, so so who that. is
0: who is the NBA royalty?
1: Okay, Lakers, Celtics, no doubt. Uh, those two are are top of the line. Honestly, the Golden State Warriors. I know people are going to think just about recently, but even even going back in time, they've they've been one of those brands uh, that have stood the test of time. So What is that three? um okay let me think
0: i'll let you i'll let you think for a second golden state's an interesting one right because they're in some ways they're kind of like the the patriots they're the they're the newest dynasty on the block so the question is have they have they reached that iconic level
1: well but they they had quite a few championships um way back when and so that's part of the reason why i had them on there uh philadelphia has 76ers I don't know. Okay, Okay, I'm just always.
0: I'm going to deviate a little bit here from the script here. So when you say they've got a, are are you going all the way back to Rick Barry and um, underhand free throw? Okay, awesome. And and again, I'm I'm proud that you're a student in this class, Doug.
1: Well, I just know that uh, I'm not sure exactly, but you know they're one of the franchises with one of the most championships. People forget that because they just think of the recent dynasty. But uh, next I had Philadelphia 76ers. I'll be honest. I don't know what they're like at what point they were winning championships. Um, I just always think of them as one of those teams that's just been around forever. And they got the kind of classic looking uniforms. And I don't know. That's I, I, I'll i put them on there just for that reason. Uh, Chicago Bulls with uh MJ. It's, it's hard not to include probably the, the most well-recognized team of all time. Um, and then I think for future generations, the Spurs will be on there, but okay. we'll see.
0: Let me let me reveal the list, the, the reveal in the podcast. Oh,
1: how, wow. That is a testament to how bad the Knicks have been in my lifetime. Completely forgot about the New York Knicks. Of course yes, they're on there. So my yeah.
0: list was Lakers, Celtics, Knicks, Bulls, and Warriors with a question mark. Um, <laughs> and, and in some ways, I put the Warriors in the, the same class as, uh, like, like I was saying, with New England of, you know, have they, look, I mean, you know, the, while these things are iconic and almost like the classic brands, the stuff does change over time. The Bulls in 1987 were not going to be on this list before Michael Jordan came to town. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there, there's this question of what do you got to do to reach that that elite status? Okay, so our last league, Major League Baseball.
1: Yeah, the MLB. Um, thinking here. Definitely the Yankees and Red Sox. First two, top tier. No doubt. Chicago Cubs. Um, I think of them in that that ballpark. No pun intended. Um The Dodgers. And who are we gonna go with fifth? I'm trying to again remove my local bias. <laughs> mm, the Giants.
0: The San Francisco Giants. Good choices. What I had down was the Yankees, Cubs, Dodgers, Red Sox, and St. Louis Cardinals.
1: Ah, Cardinals is... Yeah, I should have had that. But we were close.
0: Yeah, well, and this is an exercise I've done in the classroom for a number of years, and it really is one of these things where I I know what the audience is going to say. Sometimes if I want to have some fun with it, I'll reverse it and we'll talk about the the biggest strugglers in each of these, in each of these leagues. Um, And so, you know, the, the starting point for this discussion is really this idea of, even if, even though we struggled a little bit with the vocabulary coming into this, and I think we decided maybe marquee teams was the, almost the best descriptor that even with a little bit of uncertainty about what those words really mean, that, we all sort of understand the underlying construct, the underlying concept, and for the most part, a little bit of quibbling on the edges here. But in general, we all can kind of come up with the same list. So there, there's something there's something here. Okay, so the starting point for studying team teams, brands, or fan bases is the idea of brand equity. Okay, the concept of brand equity is that brands provide something to a product so to as a starting point doug let's let's pick a category i'll, I'll give you a couple but you can name a, a different one if you want um, i'm thinking consumer products cell phones soft drinks automobiles and, and, and look we can be very broad with this we can even say movie franchises so which of these do you want to talk about as a starting example
1: oh let's go movie franchises okay
0: Somehow that was, uh, I was predicting that in my head, I was predicting that's where you were going to (laughs) go. Okay, so the idea of brand equity is that brands provide something beyond the core product. Um, Now, movies are... A little bit, you know, the movies are a tough product to think about, right? There's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of aspects, the production values, the special effects, the acting, the directing, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, um, I think a good way to think about branding and, and for someone just jumping in, uh, what, what's your favorite movie franchise,
1: Doug? I'll say I'm, I'm a big Star Wars franchise guy.
0: Again, I'm two for two with the mental predictions today. Okay. <laughs> So th- this idea of something extra. Um and this can manifest itself in different ways. The the classic way to think about it is or the most typical one is that brand equity provides some kind of price premium. Now in the case of movie theaters or movies it's typically there's no price premium, right? Uh, each movie is what's a movie these days? $12,
1: $10 depending on the theater. Yeah, I okay. would say 10 to 15, although now there, some of them are five. They're trying to get people in the theaters, but, yeah, well, but that's a different story.
0: It's a good point. Clearly a different environment. Right. Now, just imagine the scenario. So it's it's a little bit different, but new Star Wars movie comes out and a new space opera movie comes out that is basically unknown to you. Each of these film properties gets the same... Same, let's say Rotten Tomatoes review, let's say they're both 80% positive, so they're fresh. If you had to do the mental experiment of saying, well, how much am I willing to pay to see the Star Wars movie versus how much am I willing to pay to see the the unknown space opera, Mm. what would the difference be?
1: I don't know if I can put a number on it off the top of my head, but I mean, significantly more towards Star Wars, no doubt.
0: Okay, but so there is a number, and, and maybe it, maybe it's, you know, and, and like I said, this is this is a little bit of a different category since prices don't really vary between terrible movies and great movies. But perhaps twenty dollars for the Star Wars film sure. versus you know maybe you're not even going to see the, the the generic space uh, space opera. Yeah. So maybe the the number on that is two dollars or something. So the the price premium that you're willing to pay for Star Wars. Might be something like eighteen dollars.
1: Yeah, and correct? and like a real life example of that is if there's a film coming out that I'm anticipating highly, and if you pre-order the tickets, it'll often be more expensive to reserve your seat, um, and because there's like an extra fee to do it online and all that. And I've done that before for a Star Wars movie, um, whereas I wouldn't typically do that with a movie that's um, not a franchise or director that I'm familiar with.
0: Okay, so the unknown, and and it's not just it's not just price. I mean, like I said, movies are a little bit different because tend to pay the same amount. Um, But in addition to being willing to pay more, you're also willing to show up more, right? Have you seen all of the Star Wars movies? Yes. (laughs) Okay, and and so it it attracts you because you know what it is, and you know, and this can come from a bunch of different places, and. In this case, I suspect it's because you you really love the concepts and the characters, and so you, they are familiar, and you're ready to jump in, you know, for the next film, whether it's a Han Solo movie or whatever the whatever the case can be as that mm-hmm. Star Wars universe expands. Whereas, for again, this unknown, this kind of generic movie, perhaps you're not even willing to see it. So, brand equity. Can manifest itself in different ways. Probably the two most prominent for most people are: number one, they're willing to pay more, um, and the other part of it is they're also willing to uh, experience or patronize the familiar brands. Okay, so we we talked in terms of movies, but you can see this if we're talking about soft drinks or fast food. It's a pretty common thing, and I think it's pretty intuitive. Okay, so this brings us to this idea of brand equity in sports. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something that probably people don't talk a lot about. You know, if we're if I'm teaching a marketing 101 class, you know, I'll use the examples like soft drinks, cell phones, uh, Apple products, for example, get a price premium. But sports is really kind of great for this study, for this type of study. The key is that in sports, we can control for a lot of, for, we can control for a lot of different things. I mean, I, I you know, I'm almost going to struggle when I compare a Star Wars movie to a generic space opera, right? Because what is it, you know, what is a generic space opera? But in the case of, you know, product goods, you can imagine you compare, let's say, Coca-Cola to the store brand and whatever price differential there is uh, attributed to brand equity. But in the case of sports, we can really drill down and control for a bunch of things with the biggest thing being Um, product quality Mm -hmm. okay so what is the what is the number one thing that you want from a team doug wins okay so wins and so when we're talking about brand equity in sports we can control for the success of the we can control for the success of the team and that's kind of a that's a key aspect to it uh the, the thing that makes sports maybe a little bit a little bit more complicated than some of these other product categories, though, is the fact that teams play in very different markets. So we can easily control for, you know, if a team's winning a lot of games, if they're going to the playoffs, if they're winning championships. Um, but we can also control for differences in in market potentials, right? And and so as we've been having this conversation, I'm talking about things like revenue, price premium. When we think about sports, and very quickly as a fan, you go, hey, whoa, is it fair to compare a team in what well, do you know what's the uh, biggest market in sports is what uh new york new york and so uh, i think new york uh has about 18 19 million folks in it smallest market in professional sports any ideas Ooh, smallest and professional
1: sports um Memphis.
0: Oh no, 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 no! I mean, uh, and it, it is an obvious one if you think about it. It's it's Green Bay.
1: Oh yeah. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not
0: even gonna I'm not even gonna look how many look up how many people live in Green Bay. Um, it's you know it's probably a couple hundred thousand at, at most.
1: Yeah, that I they just went right past me because I guess they're so small.
0: Yeah, but but you know, but you're right that you know New York. You've got some mega markets out there: New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. And you've also got some fairly small markets in the realm of professional sports, right? We've got Milwaukee, you know, maybe just over a million folks in the metro area. Mm-hmm. You've got places like Memphis. And so the comparison is apples and oranges. And so the way to approach this kind of study is with a statistical model. Now, we've given you guys some visuals on the website in terms of some of the basic ideas for the equations. The key really is... To be able to link the math to the the concept that I'm about to go through. Okay, so the the theory that drives this kind of modeling or this kind of analysis is that team revenues in any league. Okay, so our starting point is an idea that we're gonna build an economic model of how team revenues or really any kind of market outcome are driven by observable factors related to market potential. And team success. So one of the equations uh, that we'll, we'll, we've put out there, I'll go through this verbally. You can sort of go back and take a look at it. Is the idea that revenues for a team, and you know, when I implement this stuff, I'm going to tend to work with box office revenues because that's something that's observable. I can get a sense of what ticket prices are in a market and for a team, and I can get a you know an estimate of. An imperfect estimate, but an estimate of the number of folks going through the turnstile. So a model of... I'm going to specify a statistical model of revenues as revenues is equal to some linear equation. And again, this is just to keep it simple. Of So some function of population, median income, win percentage... And really just about any other factor that I can collect data on that I think might affect base levels of revenues. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's that's our starting point. And so it's a simple idea. Um, it's a simple idea, but I think it's a powerful one, right? So this idea that we take data on all the teams and we figure out how the league works in terms of at least the part of revenues that we can observe, <clears throat> Okay, but the other thing is that any fan knows that the story in terms of revenues is going to be more complicated than what we've put into that model, right? The Green Bay Packers, for example, play in the smallest market, and sometimes the team is not very good, okay? and you know, the, the Packers have off years over their history. But the Green Bay Packers, and, and I, I chose the Packers because I think the Packers are really known for having a and I forget what the current number is, but they're you know as a fan, we always hear these stories about the Green Bay Packers' season ticket waiting list is 25 or 30 years long, right? Have you heard about that? I have not, but it does not surprise me. Um, but the Green Bay Packers sell out every game, okay? And so they're in the smallest market. Sometimes the team is great. Sometimes the team's not very good, but they always sell out. Yeah. And so the idea that I'm going to, propose here is that that extra, that that reason that the Packers always sell out is something that we'll call brand equity. Fair? hmm Okay. So that's step one. Step two, and again, this is actually a pretty simple procedure when you think about it step by step. Step two is then simply to compare actual revenues versus what we would predict the revenues would be from the model. So remember, we're going back to this idea that we're modeling it as a function of things like population, median income, winning percentage, making the playoffs. The the theory that drives this idea is that anything that achieve that a team achieves beyond what that model predicts, right? That model based on observ- observable data is the extra that is, is the extra that they are achieving because of their brand. Now, it could also be the opposite, right? If they are failing to achieve the revenues that we predict for the league, that that could be a function of sort of not having, not having a great deal of brand equity. Okay, so the, the, the third slide that we'll leave, we put out there on the web for you guys is just formalizing that. So it's a, it's a simple equation, the idea that the revenue premium or revenue deficit this measure of brand equity is just going to be the team's actual revenues minus predicted revenues from this industry model. Okay, so to sum up the the basic idea here, uh, how we calculate brand equity or fan equity, this idea of the value of a team's fan base, is we build a model of how the industry works. This model controls for market differences, controls for team performances, Um, Step two, we compare the actual results to the predicted results. Um, And then there's also potentially going to be a step three, which is we've been talking about box office revenues. There's no reason why we can't perform this task, perform this procedure for alternative uh, for alternative signals of market success. Right. Mm -hmm. We could use TV ratings. We could use social media use just about any merchandise sales. So anything that provides a signal of how much fans like that team. Okay, so to finish up today's class, what I want to talk about is an example of implementing this procedure for measuring brand equity. The example I've chosen for this is uh, the the NBA. Okay, so for, for the NBA analysis... And we we like we started the class by talking a little bit about your I just threw it out there it's like Doug named the most iconic or the marquee brands in the NBA yeah. I was able to predict for the most part I think three or four out of the four or five that you named but this next thing is okay so intuitively we're on the same we're on the same path now what I've done is I've dug into the data. And I've actually done some calculations to figure out the brand equity across the NBA Uh, as a little bit of a foreshadowing. The starting point will be what we just talked about in the last segment, this idea of a brand or a revenue premium measure of brand equity. We've also got two other measures of brand equity in this study. Now, for you guys uh, listening along we will also provide a link to the twenty nineteen NBA fandom analysis page, so you guys can sort of dig into this. This this one's tough to give you guys a simple visual because there's there's a lot going on. There's a lot of exhibits and there's a lot of data. Okay, so let's take a let's go down and take a look at the actual winners and losers of the twenty nineteen study. Okay, Doug, I threw this I threw the I threw the winners out there. Um, You want to read off the winners, and then you can react.
1: Yeah, um, Los Angeles Lakers, Golden State Warriors, Chicago Bulls, Boston Celtics, and Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, Obviously, Lakers, Celtics, Bulls, Warriors, those are all teams that, uh, that come to mind when I think of some of the top franchises or top brands. In basketball, the Cleveland Cavaliers is kind of out of left field to me, especially without LeBron. Um, A lot of their fan base, or I guess there were a lot of LeBron fans that were Cavs fans that are now Lakers fans, and I haven't heard a peep about them (laughs) pretty much since his departure. Um, You know, Colin Sexton is a player that comes to mind in Kevin Love, but um, they're the team that most surprises me on here, no doubt.
0: Okay, and that's one of the great things about or sort of one of the necessary things for any sports analytics person to do is, you know, you build your model based on sound statistical practices, and you derive your model from theory that makes sense. And I'm not, you know, we don't need to worry about some academic theory. You build the model based on sound theory of how the marketplace works in in this case. When you actually run the numbers and you see what the results are, sometimes you get stuff that's a little bit surprising. And, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that you look at this list and there's one out of the five teams that does not make a lot of sense. Now, if you think about how this is done, right, we're pulling data from, from the league over multiple seasons. And in fact, I pulled data from about 20 seasons to generate these results. Now this idea of brand equity, this idea of what is the value of a team name or you know how valuable is a fan base of a club. This is a in some ways this is an interesting metric because this is a metric of success that is not going to be permanent, right? There's going to be changes over time. Yeah. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? But it is something that is usually going to be fairly sticky, right? Now, for the Los Angeles Lakers, if they you know, lose Anthony Davis and LeBron James, they still have pretty substantial brand equity, right? I mean, it's, like it's not going to move because they've got the history of Kareem, Magic, LeBron, Kobe, etc. Mm-hmm. It, 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 so brand equity is something that evolves over time, but shouldn't evolve that quickly. So one of the things that's unique about sports, though, and you really captured it when you when you sort of looked at uh, looked at the Cleveland Cavaliers' place on this list a little bit of skew, is that in the case of the Cavs, well, guess what? Their brand really did change rapidly, didn't it?
1: Yeah. Also, I've noticed looking at these that even their logo has changed. Oh, yeah. from from some of the earlier LeBron days. You look at the Bulls logo, and it's in the Celtics and Lakers. Those are like as old as time, and in the Cavs, different font than it used to be. Different logo. It's uh, it's you know clearly not the same timeless brand that some of those other ones are.
0: You know, it's a little bit of an aside, but I do think that's a good point. That one of the things that you see a lot of teams doing is chasing and i i I think it's it's a related point right the idea of like the uniforms the the imagery the logos that you do see a lot of let's say the the lesser brands in any league almost trying to chase chase a fashion or Mm -hmm. you know whatever the current fad is rather than build that legacy and i think in the long term it actually tends to hurt those i do too tends to hurt those teams Yeah, i do
1: too but sorry i didn't mean to get you off topic i just just noticed that just now
0: no, it's, it's, a, it's a good side point. It's a good you know, little bit of a small break in this because when we think about these brands and we think about what builds these brands' consistency in terms of the imagery, the uniforms, the logos, that's probably part of the story. I mean, what, and, and what we'll get to in a few minutes here is really this question of, I mean, so what we've done here is we've measured brand equity, Part two of this discussion really should be trying to figure out how those teams built the brand equity in the first place. So the idea of consistency in logos and uniforms—that is—that's um, that's an important point. I mean, and you, so you think about what happens with a new set of uniforms. It's almost like the teams are trying to juice things. They're trying to get the fans excited at that moment. They're trying to sell more jerseys in that season rather than build. Um, year over year, and kind of establish a classic image. Um, but but back to the, the main point, when you're building these models based on past data, and so I'm generating the top five using the last three seasons, well, guess what? Who played for the Cleveland Cavaliers the past three seasons for this 2019 preseason study? I got
1: you. I, I, didn't, I, I forgot that it was the last three seasons, so that's LeBron James.
0: Yeah, and, and so then you could argue, well, the Cleveland Cavaliers are not fundamentally the same without LeBron James and and I fundamentally agree. And so it's like this is the point though when you're dealing with this kind of analytics is you let the data speak but you have to have a deep enough understanding of the model to realize why you may get a why you may get a strange result. Yeah. Okay, so let's move down to now the bottom or the worst brands, the worst fan bases in the league. You can tell me. You can read these off and tell me what you think of
1: these. If these all make sense, all right. Washington Wizards, Memphis Grizzlies, Charlotte Hornets, Brooklyn Nets, and Detroit Pistons. Um, yeah, I, I will say the one that surprises me the most on here is Detroit, simply because of their history of of winning championships. Um, the Brooklyn Nets and Charlotte Hornets are both teams that have relocated recently, and and another thing here is the logos are funny to me because half of them changed or have changed in my lifetime at least once. Uh, the Wizards, Hornets, and Nets um, all definitely being there, and and the Grizzlies too. So, um, so it, it's just visually it's noticeable that these are less. Iconic brand simply because they haven't stuck with one thing. <laughs> um, color scheme and and even location for both Brooklyn and Charlotte. Um, yeah, location-wise, Memphis doesn't surprise me at all. Um, Brooklyn is ginormous, but it's also a new team, and, and many in New York are already attached to the New York Knicks, um, unfortunately for them. I would imagine Charlotte's relatively small uh, market for the the NBA. And and another thing is none of these teams have been extraordinarily successful in the last three years.
0: Well, okay, so I think you've kind of nailed a lot of what's going on here. Now, the one area where I want to do a little bit of a pushback or a minor redirect is that we control for market size. Right so it's not a, so much a matter of Memphis okay. or Charlotte being in small markets right we also have big markets here in terms of Washington DC and the biggest market in terms of the New York metro area for the the Nets but you you captured a, a lot of what I think is going on here there's a lot of instability uh, across a bunch of these uh, across a lot of these teams right for, for me I actually when I think the Washington NBA franchise so helped me, I want to come back to the bullets. Yeah, so this this name change to the Wizards. and in conjunction with the name change, really a drop off in performance. Uh, Memphis, the the Grizzlies, I, I, you know they they started in Vancouver, right? So this is a franchise that's moved. Charlotte, Hornets, Bobcats. New Orleans yeah <laughs> again, I find myself confused as to what their name is and where they play um for the for the Nets I think you nailed it that what happens with the Nets is that they just end up not looking good compared to the team that plays across town and and I see this across just about all the leagues whenever there are two, Whenever there are two franchises in one city, there tends to be a dominant franchise and a secondary franchise. Um, And and this is going to come to no uh, no mystery at all. uh, Again, in terms of my being able to predict what you're about to say, I'm going to guess it's about a 95 to 99% success rate. If we are talking about Chicago baseball teams, who's the dominant franchise and who's the secondary franchise?
1: Cubs, dominant, White Sox, not so much.
0: Okay, New York football, NFL
1: teams. (laughs) Giants and uh, Jets, with the Giants being the dominant.
0: Okay, um, we've already seen a little bit of the data here, but in the NBA in Los Angeles, who's the dominant team and who's the second team?
1: Lakers, Clippers, one
0: or two. Last one, New York baseball teams. um, Yeah. Yankees versus Mets. Who's the dominant?
1: (laughs) The Yankees, clearly here.
0: Okay. And so this is this is kind of a fundamental fact of how sports operates. When two teams share a market, and it makes sense on a theoretical level, right? If if sports fandom is about being part of a community, then you can almost you know predict that you're going to have one community that is essentially, like, let's say, the in crowd, and the other community that's going to just in it's it's going to be smaller. It's going to be a little bit more limited. Yeah. Okay, so the the Pistons are an interesting one on this list. When I think about the Pistons, and maybe this is magnified by the Michael Jordan documentary, I almost said Michael Jackson documentary, that the Pistons' glory days to me were in the late 80s. Now, they had a little bit of a a blip up in the early 2000s. Um, So this is a team that has, I think, three, do do we know three championships to their yeah, name?
1: Yeah, three, uh, three NBA championships, 89, 90, and 2004.
0: So the Pistons end up being an interesting one because while I think brand equity is created by being a winner, the Pistons have also had, and you know, I think you follow this more closely than me, have the Pistons had a lot of rough times since
1: 2004? <laughs> um, yes, really the the Ben Wallace, Chauncey Billups, Rip Hamilton squad, uh, Rashid Wallace was was con- in contention for several years, and they brought in Allen Iverson at toward the end of their their championship window, trying to do something there. Um, but since that team was dismantled, Detroit has not been a contender or anywhere close.
0: So it kind of highlights some of the complexity in in this, and as we think about brand equity, right, that when a team is struggling brand equity will degrade. So there's almost, it seems all intuitive to me that there's, there's going to be this trade-off. So when you have stars, Isaiah Thomas, you're winning a championship, you Chauncey Billups and Ben Wallace, and you have another, that that's where the brand equity is built. And then when you have struggling seasons with maybe no-name rosters of players, that that's where the brand equity is going to degrade. Now I suppose we could also make a case that one of the things that may not be in the model here is just the let's say the mood of the city and so what has happened to Detroit as a city over the last over the last few decades you know for example you know moving the arena out to the suburbs mm-hmm. is there something that's outside the model that makes it tough to have a glamorous brand in a struggling city and and I'll I'll take that as a potential criticism of the model as well
1: Yeah, absolutely. One other thing about Detroit that uh, comes to mind as a potential factor is I wonder how much the, I don't know if you remember the malice at the palace in Detroit, but I really felt like that hurt the whole NBA brand for a while. There was this uh, perception. And I remember as a kid kind of being led to believe that the NBA was a bunch of quote unquote, I'm not even going to say the word, but a bunch of guys that are up to no good. Um, And the mouse of the palace happened in detroit the they were the bad boys they're kind of the bad guy in the jordan documentary for a few episodes um and so i wonder how much the uh that affects their reputation or brand
0: this is a good point i mean i I think what you're getting at and and i think this is a this is definitely a truth to to sports and how brands are built how narratives are created there's sort of good guys versus bad guys yeah Pistons were bad guys. They were
1: bad guys. And then when they kind of rebuilt their image, they then had the malice at the palace where they had players punching fans and total chaos in the arena. Um, And it's like, how do you rebuild from that? (laughs) And you're trying to build fan or uh, fandom. Well, here's a question to you. So if you've got good guys and you got bad guys,
0: then kind of a, look, it's a nice way to build a narrative. Um, can the bad guys really build the same kind of brands as the good guys? You know, I I will tend to, when I think about historical bad guys, I come back to, let's say, a team like the Oakland Raiders in the 1970s NFL, and the Oakland Raiders have not, look, they didn't end up with the same kind of brand, Mm -hmm. national brand as the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Dallas Cowboys. It's an interesting point that you make. I'm not sure, I can't think of an example. Can you think of an example where the bad guys... And whatever narrative the media puts out there, where the bad guys actually end up being a marquee brand long term.
1: Uh, Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight and Darth Vader and Star Wars <laughs> movie <laughs> okay. examples. Sports-wise, uh, I mean, there's always, you know, people don't like the Patriots. Um, but, I mean, there's always opponents. Like Celtics would say the Lakers are bad guys and vice versa. So, you know, it depends how you look at it. Closest thing I could say is Patriots. Like, I feel like most people pull against them. Um, But at this point, it's simply just because they've won so much. So it's not like they were always the bad guys.
0: There's probably a distinction we need to make in there, right? Because I agree with you that I think if we did a survey across sports of who do people want to lose the most, the Patriots would be up there for NFL fans. For let's, I mean, for college basketball fans, I think it'd be off the chart that the Duke Blue Devils mm-hmm. are the yeah. most hated. Yeah. But I think there's probably a distinction between being the bad guys, right? The, the 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 ruffians, the the guys that are beating down on the heroes of Michael Jordan or whoever the glamour players are. So it might be a little bit of a little bit of a different concept. I don't know. I think it's a good one. I think that's a good question. Um, Maybe something for some future research. Okay, what I've pulled up now is a list of the overall rankings. So the overall rankings for on a team-by-team basis for this overall rank in terms of fandom. I've got the fan equity measure next to that. I've got a measure called road equity, which is how the teams perform. The fan equity measure is a measure of this revenue premium that we've been talking about. Road equity in terms of how teams draw on the road. Um, And again, all these things are in excess of what we would predict based on how good the team is in that season. And social equity, which is an interesting metric because this is not looking at what fans have to pay to go see their team in the stadium. Social equity is just looking at how teams perform on outlets like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram Versus how other teams perform in the perform in the in their league, um, just taking a look at it. Anything? Um, and again, this, this this sorry for those of you guys listening. This is tough. But, um, this is tough with the amount of data. So you really got to take a look at the at the exhibits or the website. But anything stick out to you, Doug, in terms of this list?
1: Yeah, first thing sticks out to me is the Knicks being number one in fan equity and number twenty-two in social equity. So they're top of the league in fan equity and the bottom third um, on.
0: Okay. And and this is an important thing. And so the Knicks are number one in this fan equity measure. They're overall, the reason they're not in the top five is when we look, when we add the other measures of road equity and social equity, they end up falling a little bit short. But if you just look in terms of look at how that team performs in terms of the ticket prices they're able to charge and the number of people they have coming through the turnstiles, the Knicks are always number one in the NBA or at least have been for every year that I've done this. Now what's remarkable about that is have the Knicks been good during your lifetime Doug? No. no. Okay. So there's some absolute magic there in Madison Square Garden. Now, the fact that the Knicks do not do well in social equity, what this means is while they get folks coming into the stadium, they do not do particularly well in terms of folks following the team on, let's say, Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Any thoughts on that?
1: Um, Perhaps not as young of an audience um, because – My lifetime, they weren't good (laughs) or haven't been good and haven't been necessarily worth following as a new fan and you're picking a team. I don't know if the Knicks would come to mind as a team you'd want to pull for. You look at some of the other teams around them. um, Pretty much all have been competitive at some point. All the teams in front of them and then even behind them, Rockets, Thunder, Spurs, Mavericks. I mean, uh, two out of those four have championships and the other two have, have been right there. Um, in the Western Conference Finals. And so the Knicks are the least successful <laughs> in my lifetime of these teams.
0: Okay, so when I look at these measures, I, I love the fan equity, the revenue premium measure, because this is a measure of what fans are willing to do with their wallets. So usually that's the gold standard in marketing. People are willing to pay. What I like about social equity, and I think you really captured it in terms of Even your speculation about young people, I include social equity in this because I think it's a forward looking measure, right? So we can look at what the essentially 50 year olds are doing in terms of where they're putting their money, but what is happening with the next generation? And so, with the next generation, if when they're thinking about who they like, look, the next generation, the 20 year olds, 20 year olds in general can't really afford to be things like season ticket holders Mm -hmm. 25 year olds can't really afford it uh, with the way prices have escalated over the last couple of decades but they can follow who they like on social media and so what's attracting people to social media again it's probably winning it's having stars and the knicks have not well i I don't want to say it have the knicks performed well on those kind of things that are going to drive
1: young people's interest no no and it's reflected here i mean 22nd in social equity OK,
0: um, it, you know, and we'll look at uh, real quick and then we'll move on here. When you look at the road equity numbers here, did those make sense to you as well? So number it, the number one team for road equity are the Los Angeles yeah. Lakers. Number two are the Warriors. Number three are the Cavs. Mm-hmm. Remember, this was LeBron. during this was using data from the LeBron era. Number four were the Celtics. Um, number five, was the Thunder? What do you think?
1: Thunder, newest team in the NBA, um, but they've been successful from day one. They've been uh, in the playoffs almost every year. And so uh, I'm trying to think of these years. These are probably late Russell Westbrook to 17, 17, 18,
0: and... Uh- Uh, Yeah, you got when the seasons ended. James Harden,
1: because a lot of these I'm looking at, and I'm just thinking of the player on that team. Obviously, the Lakers are a little different um, pre-LeBron, but the Warriors, you know, people want to go out and see Steph Curry, Cavs. People want to go out and see LeBron. Uh, Celtics are another one, like the Lakers, where it's really the team value. But I mean, they they got some guys as well. Um, The Thunder, I'm thinking James Harden. Like, there's some James Harden fans out there um, in different cities that are gonna go pay to watch him play and and he's well, a top, I mean he's like an M V P candidate all those years so it's not too surprising that he drew some some people in different states.
0: Well, Westbrook and Durant, right? For the Thunder.
1: Well they prior prior to I don't know, in these years Durant
0: Well this is this is gonna cover twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen, okay. twenty eighteen. Gotcha. Um so so very much driven by star power of star power and again you know in in some ways with this kind of analysis it will always be a little bit tricky to you know the, this notion of capturing star power that is not just totally controlled for in terms of how much the teams win in the case of the NBA where the star power is off the charts in terms of you know durant Kobe uh, leBron James but again it kind of comes back to this notion of fully understanding what you've done as an Analyst. Okay, so to wrap this up, we've we've taken a little bit of a tour through the NBA, um, and I've alluded to where I think the. So this study is, I think, interesting in terms of using data to quantify the value of team brands, to compare fan bases across across teams in any league. Question becomes, is there something here for the business person, for the analyst, more so than just kind of a fodder for barroom debates? And so one thing that can be done with this is actually then once you have the brand equity rankings is to drill down and start to figure out how this brand equity is created. Now, I'll sort of make this simple Well, I'll make it simple, but without going into too many details. So one of the things I've done over years is look into how brand equity is created across leagues. And so, you know, we've got the NBA here. Um, I've done this at the college level. I've done it for MLB, for the NFL. One of the things, and I'll I'll throw this back to you, Mm -hmm. Doug. It's like, how do you think, and I'll sort of steer you a little bit here, how much winning – is necessary, or what degree of winning is needed to build brand equity in different leagues? Hmm. Does that question make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, and to, to make it more specific, how much do teams have to achieve? Is it enough to just be a winning team to make the playoffs? Do you have to win championships? Yeah. Okay? And so in the NBA, for example, what's your prediction? What do you have to do to actually build this brand equity, this fan equity?
1: I mean, looking at those top couple teams, championships makes a lot of sense. Um, Beyond being a top five equity team, I think superstar power is the second most championship thing. And in in today's NBA, those two go hand in hand often. Um, But star power and championships with championships being – kind of the top thing i think in any sport um it it may vary like the degree but championships are always crucial um and i would imagine if we look at the mlb and nfl and in kind of these fan rankings there'd probably be the same kind of correlation
0: you're you're mostly right in the NBA, it is absolutely championships. Now, you do make a good point that it's championships and it's having star um, star players. I did some work years ago, and let's say like digging into the back end of all these brand equity analysis, looking at Heisman Trophy winners um, and what's their impact on schools. and And your, your intuition is dead on. Having a Heisman Trophy winner creates really significant equity for teams. So winning national championships going to major bowl games. That's a sort of where I find some of this interesting, right? In the, in the college ranks, it actually is not entirely about winning past national championships. Now that may have changed with the playoffs. It's about going to the major bowl games and having Heisman Trophy mm-hmm. winners. In the case of the NBA, you're right, it's having Hall of Famers. Um, where I think it's interesting when we start to compare across leagues is in major league baseball, the key seems to be just to make the playoffs on a regular basis in the NBA. The teams really have to win championships. And I think historically that result makes some sense, right? Because how difficult was it historically to make the playoffs in major league baseball versus
1: making the playoffs in the NBA? Um, I'm gonna assume. And by the way, it's framed that it is more difficult in Major League Baseball.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I've been teaching for too long that I, you know, uh, Your Honor, the professor is leading the students to the answer he wants to continue <laughs> the discussion. Um, but but that, that that's what it is, right? So historically, in Major League Baseball, you know, you had to win your division you had to win the pennant to go to the world uh, to go to the world series and so winning the national league created w- was enough to create equity now this may have changed as the playoff as the playoff schedule expands throughout almost all of sports but it's something that it's something that we're actually going to talk a little bit about in the next class when we talk about how leagues are designed how they're structured and how that impacts how much fans care and sort of the levels and levels of competition. But one consequence of the way the NBA has tended to operate over time versus MLB is that by letting everyone into the playoffs, you end up making it difficult to create brand equity because making the playoffs isn't anything special. So you have to win championships. In Major League Baseball, when making the playoffs were more rare, it's possible to build brand equity that way. If we want to switch around and talk about college football for a second, the old system that the fans hated, right, the lack of a playoff for a national championship, was actually great for creating historical powers and blue bloods, right? Mm -hmm. Because you could have teams that dominated the Big Ten and went to the Rose Bowl every year, and that essentially was, hey, maybe there's a split national championship, but those teams were regarded as elite. Now as we've shifted towards a playoff system where everything is filtered down, and you know, as in the Highlander, there can only be one, what is the long-term ramifications? Does college football end up looking like that there are only... Well, I mean, look, Doug, you're a big college football fan. Who has dominated the college football playoffs?
1: Alabama, Clemson.
0: Okay, so you came up with with, with two teams. And so, you know, you, you go back in time, and it, it might have been something where people would talk about the elite as in college football as being about 10 schools. You institute a, a playoff, and now suddenly maybe it's only, let's say, Clemson and Alabama at this moment. Okay, so where we're going on in the course, and if you guys have been following around, this was class seven of eight. So we are rapidly coming to the end. Um, Today is in a lot of ways a a wrap-up where we end up talking about measuring and really thinking about the end product of the sports business, which is the creation of this large, valuable, fanatical customer base. What I like to do to end the course is what I refer to as a, well, a discussion about the rules of the game. And immediately, you know, it starts to get a little bit, uh, you know, since we're talking sports, I think when we say the rules of the game, you're, we're talking about, well, what, how long the games are, what are the rules, it's what how do you call holding, uh, three strikes, four balls, all these kind of things. But that's not what I want to end it with. What I want to end it with are the rules for how these games operate. So when we talk about player performance, usually we're talking about building a team, right? We're, we're trying to select the right players to build a roster. That is also something that occurs throughout, you know, Well, as teams do that, they're doing that under a set of prescribed rules, right? You can't just go out there and sign anyone. We got amateur drafts, we got free agency, we got salary caps. So each of the major leagues out there and the college programs as well operate under a set of rules. And so what I like to do to end the course is taking a big step back and thinking about topics like league organization, things like the collective bargaining agreements, and how the, the way each league is structured in terms of the rules of the game, how that impacts the way teams choose to compete, and how that influences the, the final product that the fans see on the field or on the court.